Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with rising star Mirka Borat. Fresh from her triumph in Boston Early Music Festival's production of Orlando Generoso. Find out why the young Hungarian soprano is already considered to be one of the foremost interpreters of Baroque opera and who gave her her big break. But first, we go to the movies, throwing popcorn at Ron Howard's documentary about tenor Luciano Pavarotti and weeping over the death of Franco Zeffirelli. Plus, two-minute drill, new diversity initiatives, new strikes, new sexual assault allegations, and all our hot takes on the latest headlines from Opera Land. And, of course, you can call us on air, get your voice heard, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your opinion on what we're talking about tonight, 847-866-9687. You can tweet us at Opera Box Score. You can also post on our Facebook page. Oliver Camacho over in the interview studio. Hello. How are you, sir? I'm so happy. Um, I just got back from Boston Early Music Festival, and uh, my arms are very tired because uh, in the broke era, there are no airplanes. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, oh, you just got back from Boston. That's why you're so tan, but you're always tan. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's melanin. Not exactly what I meant. Matt Cummings, how are you? Well, I'm disappointed because I thought Oliver meant he was happy because he was excited to see me again. I am. Well, it's not what you did not make your list. It's a different type of excited. So. <laughs> the type of excitement we can't talk about on the radio. Weston <laughs> Williams, are you happy? Uh, I feel pretty good. I mean, I know that no one's excited to see me, but that's okay. <laughs> the Women's <sighs> World Cup <Sorry>. is <laughs> in action right now. I'll be honest, and I'll say that I haven't watched one of the matches yet, but the early matches with the U.S. dominating thing, it's not that exciting. Aren't right? the U.S. women just expected to win? Just generally? Oh, yeah. Generally, yeah. They're, they're, they're really good. They're the only soccer I've ever watched in my life, and I, they're quite good. <laughs> uh, of course, following our show with Andrew Jorgensen from Opera Theater of St. Louis, the St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup. Yep, yep. Because of Andrew's interview with Opera Box Score. That is how that <laughs> works. gave them the Opera Box Score <laughs> bump over there in he, St. Louis. I so. could just feel him just willing it to happen the entire time. And uh, I think the other big sort of sports news, the, the Toronto Raptors in the NBA, where did that come from? Canada, I assume. I always think of Velociraptors when I hear that word. I, 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 I think that's yeah. what it's I think we all do, right? <laughs> Is it not? Is it not? Is I, it yeah, I don't think it's talking it about the general bird of prey. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would call them the Toronto Vegas general mascot bird. ever. Uh, how about the Cardiff Singer of the World competition? They're in the middle of it right now. Um, actually, two people affiliated with Chicago based Patrick Weddy and uh, tenor Ming Ji Lei, who uh, is actually competing for China but did the Ryan Opera Center. They both advanced to uh, final rounds. Oh, nice! So, yeah, I don't. I think there's like the song round, the song prize, and the the main prize. I think that happens like on Friday and Saturday. And so the by, audience favorite. Yes. So by next week, we'll have all the winners. But um, we'll break it down for yeah. you. Nice. All right. Looking exciting. forward to uh, following up on that as well. Let's talk some opera. Chalk talk. On Opera Box Score. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Full house tonight. Summer is here. Movie time is here. And, of course, there is this Ron Howard documentary just out on Luciano Pavarotti. Who? 
Yes. Uh, OBS <laughs> you don't Hall of Fame you, member. I was going to say, you don't know who Ron Howard is? <laughs> I know who Ron That's Howard right. is. He's, he's Opie from uh, Andy Griffith's show. Let's, let's uh, listen to a little clip of it. Come vorresti essere ricordato tra cent'anni? My father was a tenor. You always do what your father is doing, so I'm a little tenor. My mother says, my son sing with a beautiful voice. I say, Mama, you say that because you are my mother. No, because I don't say that when I hear your father. <laughs> Luciano's voice was beautiful. He would just open his mouth. Everything was easy. He was a nervous wreck before every performance. He would always say, we go to die. Can you be sure you'll hit the note? No, that is the beauty of my profession. We don't need to get to the end of that trailer when, of course, he sings Nessun Dorma in some <laughs> Italian ruin for like 30,000 people. Oliver Camacho was there this afternoon watching... At the Italian ruin, yes. We're <laughs> <laughs> That's just where Oliver hangs out in Italian so, ruin. So, Oliver, first of all, so this movie is the length of an opera. It's almost three hours. Yeah. I, I, actually, I went this afternoon as my Opera Box Score-funded research uh for today's <laughs> podcast you owe me 13 dollars and 12 cents plus i got i got popcorn so that's another 25 dollars <laughs> plus you got junior mints fund. you're not yeah. you're not getting reimbursed yeah, for so, those junior mints yeah plus i needed a pair of scissors to cut a hole in the popcorn so that i could oh my lord um <laughs> no comment <laughs> <laughs> so you know there are some reviews out about this movie and i'll just say if you are a singer um, and if you like Pavarotti, even if you're not a singer, you're going to enjoy this movie because there's so mm. much great archival footage from the Pavarotti like museum in Modena, and uh, you know pictures of him when he was a little kid, and uh, you know you know weird pirate videos of stuff that we've never seen before, which makes it all very worth it. And there are uh, almost n except for Ness and Dorma, there are almost no pr complete performances of arias or scenes, which is very frustrating because mm. just as like it's starting to get into some interesting part of an aria, it cuts away to some talking head interview. So that part is very frustrating. Um, I have to say, I don't know who this movie is for because if it were for singers, if it were for musicians, it would be a lot more getting in the weeds about, you know, his the steps of his career and who he worked with and maybe some of the scandals on the musical side, like when he got fired from Lyric Opera or, um, you know, supposedly hiding food, you know, off stage, this type of stuff. Like, <laughs> and on stage. Yeah. <laughs> so we get none of that. Uh, and, you know, I don't feel like America or the audiences generally care that much about like what Angela Gheorghiu has to say or what Vittorio Gagolo has to say because they have no idea who those people are. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. we get interviews with those people. I think um, the best parts of the movie are, is when his family is talking about him. And I have to say that his first wife is gorgeous and his daughters, his adult daughters, are gorgeous. And I just think Italian women in general, especially if they have some Pavarotti money coming into their lives, <laughs> are really well-preserved. Um, so, And those those scenes about him and his family and like how his um, extramarital affairs might have caused, you know, skiffs in his fa in his family. Um, those are really touching moments in the film. But, but ultimately, um, the general public, what will they get out of this movie? I don't, I really don't know. I Like I said, I don't know who this movie is for. Um, it misses opportunity. There's no conflict in the movie. I think Ron Howard is really paying tribute to this guy and not really showing the darker side of hmm. what was happening uh, with him. And there are hints of it. But uh, they're just suggested, you know, like his maybe his obsession with food is kind of talked about in a funny way. And, um, you know, how, how terrible it would be to find out that your personal assistant, that if you're Pavarotti's wife and his personal assistant ends up being his girlfriend and eventually his second wife. Like that type of stuff is just sort of like, oh, yeah, and that happened. <laughs> I mean, Ron Howard... Mr. Howard, why would you want to direct this movie? Why would I, I he think, be attracted to this story, Weston? Well, I think this is the big question of this movie because uh, when it comes down to it, you know, biopics, uh, uh, documentaries about singers, opera singers, uh, uh, composers are really not all that uncommon, but usually they're direct to PBS, you know, documentaries. Uh, when... Uh, 
the fact that they got Ron Howard, who's he's a big, big name, uh, big name, obviously, not just Opie Taylor from the Andy Griffith Show, uh, for those of you keeping score or at home. Or Winthrop from the Music Man with <laughs> Robert Preston. That's a deep cut right there. Dare I? Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, is, it is really interesting to me. Um, that Ron Howard, I think, took this on. But I, I do think that, uh, in many ways, he's the exact like right generation for it, um, because I feel like uh, uh, basically you can see uh, when when uh, uh, when uh, Ron Howard got started. You know, uh, kid in the '60s, um, as Eddie Griffith Show helps me remember. Uh, you know, growing up and and seeing it, he he was there for the entire sort of rise to fame, uh, not just on the opera stage, but as part of the you know the big crossover success, the big sort of three tenorsy kind of deals, and uh, I I almost wonder if maybe that was what he was attaching to. Maybe that's who it's for the people who remember those sort of crossovery sort of and, things. And that's an interesting point because some of the, the reviews of this movie in general, I would say, have kind of been all over the place. Some of them are yeah. raves and some of them are pans. Uh, but one thing that a couple of them have pointed out that I've noticed is that there's this kind of conflation that goes around with making a big Hollywood blockbuster movie about an artist, which is that their popularity, their monetary success becomes conflated with their artistic achievements. And with Pavarotti, those things were really like pretty inversely proportional. <laughs> like the more popular he got, the more famous he got, the more exposure he got, the less he was engaged with the operatic community, with 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 the art form that, that initially launched him to success. Yeah, I mean, it was really those three tenors concerts that made him an international star. I mean, he already was a star in the opera world, but that's when everybody knew who he was and became a part of, of the popular culture. And then he started doing these Pavarotti and Friends concerts where he would, you know, sing with Celine Dion and Stevie Wonder. And, <laughs> and the Spice Girls and... Yeah, Spice Girls. Yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, he was making a ton of money doing those things. Oh yeah, but he was also doing a lot of these concerts for charity. I have to say, and donating to, you know, help uh, rebuild Bosnia Herzegovina or like create schools or these types of things, like Princess Diana charities. You know, there was actually a really great scene about when when he sang for Princess Diana in London, um, in the park, like in a public public park. And uh, how Princess Diana really took to him, and how they became friends. That was actually a very touching scene in the show, and I had never, I'd never known that, and never seen that before. So, that was a good moment. But um, in general, um, yeah, the stuff that we know about as singers of his behavior, and obviously, stuff James Levine is nowhere to be found in this movie. But, <laughs> but like you know, uh, interactions with other artists, and like his uh, not being able to read music, and having special scores made for him. Uh, that were basically new ways of describing music so that he could, like, you know, read a score when everybody else was looking at actual sheet music, you know. You see glimpses of it in some of the footage of him in recording studios and whatnot, but it's never talked about, you know, and it's, they make him sound like he's, like, this great musician and, like, he did master class. And, yes, he was an amazing musical person. But, but really instinctive. Yeah, exactly. And, right. As opposed to the more studied. Yeah. Uh, musicianship of someone like, um, I mean, Maria Callas is one who gets thrown out all the time as like someone who just worked her tail off yeah. to learn everything that she could and it's just be. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM, 847-866-9687. Number in the studio, give us a call if you've seen this movie. I didn't know that Pavarotti didn't read music. It, it, I mean, that that's definitely something that it, people debate whether or not it's an urban legend or whether it's true, but I think that it's it's pretty well-known among the musical community that he is just completely going in naturally. Uh, he, he is Italian, and everything about his sound and everything about his phrasing is Italian, but... The in terms of like the musicological study, that that was not an itch that he ever really needed to scratch. Yeah. <laughs> when you got those pipes, you don't need to. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Franco Zeffirelli also died earlier this week at the Transition. age <laughs> of ninety six, I believe. Ninety six, yeah. yeah. I I I thought that it was because uh, we started sort of uh, thinking about talking about Pavarotti on the segment, you know, before we actually heard about this news, and um, uh, and there was no other place we could have put this in the show because uh, Zeffirelli is right there on sort of the precipice between opera and film. 
Um, uh, obviously, he's he's known in the opera world for being that guy who does all the really uh, hyper-realistic, huge, fancy, elaborate sets that the Met uh, is just now starting to get rid of. Um, but he also did uh, a, a lot of film versions of operas and, of course, straight films as well. His Romeo and Juliet was his first really big success and probably what he's most known for outside the opera world, I'd say. Uh, I say that as someone very much inside I, the I opera I think world. that's probably pretty true. Uh, and he never really was able to... to to reachieve that that success, even though there were, and that that Romeo and Juliet famously had unknown beautiful teenage actors playing Romeo and Juliet True. to try to get more of a <laughs> yes. naturalistic reading on the play, as opposed to hiring like arch Shakespeareans the way he did, the the way he would in an opera. That, or in his Hamlet with Glenn Close. And for some people, um, the movie version of La Traviata with Teresa Stratus and Placido Domingo might have been their first experience with opera like a full mm. opera not like going to the theater but listening to a whole show uh, that was a uh, a film version that was widely circulated and appreciated in its time it was like from 1982 or something there's also uh, an Otello with Placido Domingo and Cato Riccioli from like 1986 but Domingo is definitely very much in blackface so I don't know if that <laughs> one is so good the, anymore uh, the, the one that I always think of is his uh, Pagliacci uh, the one that, he, that that was partially filmed on a movie soundstage and partially filmed at La Scala I have seen that it's uh, it's it's pretty good I mean it's it's, it's got a certain it's very Zeffirelli you know uh, and I think this is sort of the thing uh, with Zeffirelli he's very much uh, in many ways, I really do associate him with Pavarotti and that whole generation of singers, uh, you know, at the Met, the big, grand, uh, completely Italian uh, sort of face value of the music. There's very much, uh, philosophically, between Pavarotti and Zeffirelli, I think there's the, a similar idea that if you just put what's on the page on the stage and just do it as gloriously as possible, it will speak to the audience, and I think it did uh, in the era. But it's also the uh, sort of the opposite of sort of the Reggie Teatro tradition and a lot of the, the more avant-garde movements that uh, tend to poo-poo Zeffirelli productions. And, well, <laughs> it's also his attitude. His attitude was very much that at one point he he got asked about those experiments, and he responded, "Well, I, that, those aren't opera director. Those aren't opera directors. They're not directing opera. They're directing whatever they want. I'm the only opera director because I'm the one who's you know bringing the art form." <laughs> <laughs> to life and that that um that closed mindedness that that kind of closed mindedness i would say does uh put him in a parallel with Pavarotti in terms of like the lack of not the the lack of intellectual curiosity to try to push the art form forward meant that after a point their 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 contributions were kind of limited yeah, and not and, to not to detract from either of them because no because they both they both they both are incredibly important artists in their time i mean how many uh, how many uh, opera directors could like the average opera goer name? I think it's Zeffirelli, and that's it. And not that many of them have like a look. Like Zeffirelli definitely right. has a look, and that's Absolutely. something to be said for that. And that's something to be said for him. And it's it's funny to me as a young opera fan to imagine a time where Zeffirelli was fresh. Uh, but the way that, <laughs> but the but but in his obituary, the the article does point that out. So actually, probably now that we're kind of moving on and circling back, I, I think that we, history will will bring forward some of the really positive aspects of his work. But, you know, by the time he was 95 and 96 and and really just kind of the old the old grandpa yelling at the young people to get off of his lawn. No, this is an exact parallel with actually a theme that happens in the movie. Uh, while uh, Pavarotti was dabbling with Bono and <laughs> Spice Girls and whatnot, uh, yeah, the <laughs> opera community is sort of like, ugh, Pavarotti. It's like, you know, he's, he's, he's a has-been, you know? And now that he's passed away and we're re revisiting his artistry, People now just think about, my God, we had this great tenor and there will never be another tenor with that type of personality and charisma and voice mm. ever again. And I think we are. I think you're right. I think in the future we're going to talk about Zeffirelli productions as excessive and opulent and impractical as they are. As like, oh, that was like the heyday of when the Met could afford to put whatever <laughs> four thousand extras on for Aida on stage, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and cover the stage with gold for Torondot. You know, they will be absolutely. They will be seen as part of you know the era of excess in opera. They're 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 going to be already the, seen that. They're going to be you ways. know when people used to drive Hummers back in like nineties. And later. Yeah. and later, yes. <laughs> you heard it here. I first. still drive one. What do you mean? <laughs> Zeffirelli is the Hummer. 
of opera. <laughs> really hot in 2005. Um, yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, I do want to uh, uh, point out that um, there is something really magical about uh, Zeffirelli's uh, take on opera, and I think for many people, it is the kind of sets and opulence that they do associate with opera, uh, for better or worse. Um, and I do think that uh, he is going to be a missed element. Uh, I don't think he's going to be copied um, very much, unlike some other directors. But I do think that uh, in a few years' time, I would not be terribly surprised to be talking about a Zeffirelli biopic. Oliver goes inside the huddle with Hungarian soprano Emoka Borat. That's next, only on America's talk radio show about opera. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM. You can tweet us at Opera Box Score. All the things that we talk about on tonight's show at our website, operaboxscore.com, and the number in studio, 847-866-9687. Give us a call. Let us know what you're thinking about what we're talking about. Great team tonight. Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, all in the studio. So I just got back from Boston Early Music Festival and I have to say, I'm the worst sometimes, and that like I don't really do a lot of research before I go see a show. I just want to like take it in for the first time and, you know, be impressed or follow the story, and um, yeah, not have to do all the work that we're always telling people they need to do to to enjoy opera fully. And uh, I heard this singer, America Borat, Borat, who is the really one of the the she's the star of the show, even though it's called Orlando Genero, so it's really following her story arc. And uh, she comes on stage uh, in this opera and she just takes it. She takes it away from everybody. She was just so amazing. And I was like, who is this person? I looked at her. I was like, I recognize that name. And I started to just, you know, Google her. It's like, oh, she's on that recording. Oh, she did this, you know. And so I was so excited that the festival arranged for me to meet with her so I could capture this interview. Tell us about the clip that we start things off with. This is from her newest CD called Voglio Cantar, which is um, Seicento arias of um, Strozzi, Cesti, and Cavalli. very excited to introduce you to Emirke Barat. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Well, could you, could you say it actually correctly for us so we all know how to say it? Emirke Barat. Emirke? Yes, Emirke Barat. Emirke Barat. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this is a really wild, um, old Hungarian name, so uh-huh. I'm, I'm, it's not, I'm not surprised that, yeah. 
that actually nobody can really pronounce it. Uh, foreign foreigners, I mean, uh, but you know, I, I don't, I don't care. I, I, I appreciate the fact that people try to pronounce it, and <laughs> I, it's, it's nice. Okay, so is there in in Hungarian? Is there like a history of this name since you said it's no? I think it probably it's um, it's about a thousand year old name, so it's an old one, okay. like like really ancient. Old Hungarian name. Okay, well, how convenient that you specialize in like ancient music too. <laughs> so I don't know anything about like the Hungarian conservatory system. Can you tell me a little bit about your training in Hungary? And I'm particularly interested in how you went towards uh, Baroque music in mm-hmm. Hungary. Um, in in Hungary, it's it's very interesting because when um, the, between age 14 and 18, you have a if you want to be an artist. You can choose a special school, uh, like if you want to be a dancer or a, or a painter or a musician, you can go to a school like that. And in the morning, you get the same subjects like anyone else, mm-hmm. like mathematics, literature, languages, so the normal normal things. And in the afternoon, you continue with your art lessons. So I was studying in a in a school like that we call that conservatory in Hungary. Okay. In other countries it's it's already a higher degree but for us this is the kind of middle uh, education. And when I I finished this uh, this school with uh, singing and harp, I was a harpist. Okay. Uh, and I studied also music theory. Uh, that was also one uh, thing I was specialized for. After I, I um, sent my application to the Franz Liszt Academy in Budapest, which is a very famous European music um, um, institution, institution yeah, school, and yeah. university, we yeah. call university, um, and and uh, they took me and um, as a singer, um, uh, I applied for harp as well, though, okay. but finally I didn't start my harp studies, just singing. And uh, I was studying there for five years, so I did my bachelor and my master's uh, in Budapest. And I don't, like I said, I don't know much about the conservatory system there. But was there a program for early music? No, not at all. Not at all. So everything I learned about early music, it was in master classes. So I started to go for master classes for my second year. Immediately, it was clear for me that it's something I'm really. Uh, I feel really natural uh, in. I really, mm, I catch, I can catch very easily yeah. the atmosphere of it. I have also the ability because I have the um, agility yeah. uh, of of the of the voice. Yeah. I I have um, I have a very um, strong connection with the text. Mm-hmm. So it was actually very clear for me that and that baroque music should be my main thing to do. I'm so glad you said that because you touched on a couple of things you said you have a music theory in your background do you feel like you apply your music theory to like when you're writing cadenzas or ornaments oh yes of course and yeah. and, and uh, I have an absolute pitch which sometimes not so helpful in fact yeah. but many times it, it, it is mostly it, it's really so helpful. absolute pitch is not perfect pitch it's like you understand where A440 is or A415 is or uh, well I know when I hear a uh, note, I just know what it is. Okay. So yeah, yeah. So for 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 me, that's why singing. Uh, when I started to sing early music, yeah. and it's on four fifteen. Yeah. And I, I was my score was in my ha- hand. Yeah. I was confused yeah. because for me, that's you know yeah. that was A and not A flat. So yeah. I had to actually transpose. My yeah. brain had to transpose what I was. Okay. I was. I what I saw in the score. What about when you do French Baroque music? Oh no, that's oh. a nightmare. That's a to- <laughs> and that's still a nightmare when I have to sing. You're one. about to sing Castor oh. Pollux. Yes. Yeah. 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 So 2011, uh, you won the uh, first prize in the international singing competition for Baroque opera in Innsbruck, and that was the same year you won the Grand Prix in Verbier Festival. Yes. Can you tell me about that year and like what just locked in? Was that like an important year for you? Oh yes, oh, oh yes. It's <laughs> everything just changed like 180 percent in my life. It was crazy. I won this competition, which was funny because I didn't want to go. 
and and my boyfriend, then my former boyfriend. Oh, like you're then, breaking people's hearts now. Don't no. tell us about your boyfriends. <laughs> no, it's, he, he, he's not anymore my boyfriend. <laughs> okay. But he he convinced me. Are you crazy? You have to go. You have to go. And I said, Well, I'm not prepared. I didn't learn my narias. No, I don't want to go. But he was pushing me, and and uh, I'm really grateful for that because in five days I learned all my arias. Okay. And I went there and I and I won. What arias did you sing? Do you remember? <laughs> I won. Uh, I sang a cavalli. Okay. Uh, from Callisto, Siem Mortalio Divini. It starts okay. with the recitativo, okay. and then it's a very, very, very nice, beautiful aria with two, with violin solo. Okay. And uh, I, I sing. Um, Handel arias. Um, I don't remember honestly anymore. Okay. Uh, and and this first prize just opened everything for me yeah. because Alan Curtis, who unfortunately he died away, in, yeah. in 2015, but he was in the who is one of the greatest pioneer of the early yeah. music, and he, he was American, and he <clears throat> kind of discovered me. Yeah. So I can tell that I, I actually I can actually thank him yeah. that probably that I'm sitting here with you now. Yeah. Because if in that moment he doesn't give immediately recording and the tour with, Sesto, with Karina Govan, with Marini Colmieu, with so all So she's talking people. about the Giulio Cesare recording uh, with Karina Govan as Cleopatra. It was yeah. amazing. I was just, you know, in middle. You're a kid. <laughs> I was a kid, and I didn't even know where and you what sang I was. Sesto, yeah. What I was going to do, where yeah. I, I, where I will sing with whom? Nothing. I never recorded anything ever in yeah. my life, and immediately, I yeah. had to record this long, long role, very difficult sometimes, really virtuoso stuff. So, so uh, you know when I, when when you are twenty five year old and and you are just standing there at the <laughs> Théâtre de Champs Élysées and Théâtre and then which are the, one of the greatest theaters in all Europe, mm-hmm. and then in I don't I don't think I really got got it in in that moment what is happening. I I was like I, I, that you know I had this sensation that I just landed on a planet. Yeah. Uh, like Mars or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you brought up Alan Curtis because I, I was going to ask you who are the conductors now, who might be who have the ear, and the idea of mentorship that are picking the next generation. I mean, you're already in. Everybody wants to be, you know, buying America Barats, you know. But who are who are the conductors that you see right now that maybe you're working with as well <laughs> that are ushering in that next generation? To be to be honest. Mm, and it's not only my opinion, but the older generation, and I'm talking about Ellen Curtis as well, uh, they just had a very uh, strong sense, sensibility to discover uh, special singers or voices. So uh, I don't know. Today it's hard to, to meet this Kind of probably because of the the young conductors, probably they don't have yet this kind of um, experience. So maybe when they will get older, they will also okay. they will have this ability yeah. to understand that who this is this singer. She's not ready yet, but yeah. she will be great. I have to support because yeah. now they take singers who are. With, with with whom they can sell projects and they with with whom they can sell discs. Yeah, concerts, you yeah. know. I mean, who's buying discs anyway? Maybe in Europe there, but in the yeah, US, but but also it. for ticket ticket yeah. for a theater, you know. Yeah. So the audience need names, and yeah. and uh, uh, Ellen Curtis gave me a big role. Nobody knew how who I was. Yeah. Nobody, and but he said, "I I trust you. I heard you singing five minutes, but I'm convinced that you will be great." And this never happened, never happened with me. Uh, before or after, so he was a fantastic uh, person, and and I, I um, I'm upset that I I'm, couldn't. I can feel your emotion right no, now. I, it's I, coming to I'm me. upset I couldn't tell him um, how grateful I was to him, but I hope he he he, he hears me. <laughs> <laughs> no, incredible. I mean, I I was looking at your profile on Opera Base, which is like this database that we use on the show to look at people's careers and 
I see that you have uh, you know worked with um, Ottavio D'Antone and uh, Emmanuel Haim and Ricardo Menazzi and William Christie and Diego Fazolis and uh, Natalie Stutzmann. These are all my heroes. I mean, these are all the people that I wish that I was had your talent and I could sing for them because I'm so crazy about the way they make music. Are any one of those names that you want to talk to me about, uh, people that you really well, yeah, By the way, William Christie is the same, yeah. absolutely the same category, who, yeah. who just, you know, connects immediately with the, with the music musician. So mm. he feels. And um, so he with him, he just trusts that things will just work. I had an incredible John's passion with him. We had two concerts, and the first one we got so emotional. And I, my area said, Frisse, mine hurts, it's, it's in the end. Yeah. And I got too emotional, probably too much. Yeah. And I saw that him on his face that he got emotional too. And for the ball, it was just. He was crying and I was crying too and we looked at each other and it was a really touching moment I will never forget. It was really, really nice. He is, you know, he, we were connected. It yeah. was amazing. Um, with a little bit of time we have left, um, I just want to talk to you about your acting. Uh, we had a little conversation in the car on the way to the uh, interview room here and um, I just was not expecting you to be a good actress, honestly. I know that this festival... <laughs> works really hard to develop, you know, the gesture and the movement. And so I expect things to look beautiful. But as far as, like, a connection, a real authenticity, this was apparent from the moment you walked on stage. And I thought, I really thought the opera should be called Relamante because <laughs> it is so much about your character and you are so strong in your the way you carry yourself and your conviction, your anger, your passion, everything is so clear in this show. And um, I was just really impressed. And I want to know, where did you get these skills? Like, mm. this is not ex I don't expect great mm. singers to have everything like this. You know? <laughs> I wish I could have everything. Oh, my God. Oh. Well, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, um, I think I could really connect with this character because there are a lot of similarities between her okay. and me. So it was just easy to get jealous and angry. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the other thing which makes it very interesting this character that there is a self-reflection in, um, in this character because she understands that she was wrong and she makes a progress as Bradamante. She was a kind of person in the end, uh, beginning of the opera yeah. and the end of the opera she changes, she makes yeah. a step higher and she, she can say yeah I was wrong and, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm better and I can yeah so, yeah. so I, I like this, I like characters who, who, who make progress well, peeling, peeling back the layers to the technique um, so yeah maybe some of these uh, emotions the character arc really resonate with you but still you have a skill and can you do you remember where you began to acquire these skills well firstly i didn't study opera singing so i i had the possibility to to uh, do opera master in budapest but i decided to not do that because i felt my voice not ready Okay. to sing opera. I said, I want to a little bit master my vocal skills, my technique, and then I will see uh, how it goes. And I think I, I did it. It was a smart decision now, to be honest. Now I, okay. I, I look at it. and So I studied oratorio and song. Okay. And after, somehow it happened, I started to sing opera uh, in a real music productions after this, um, this competition. Uh, competition yeah. Exactly. Uh, I started to be invited for different festivals, opera houses, and I had the chance to work with Robert Carson, with Klaus Gut, Graham Vick, uh, uh, amazing, I mean, the best yeah. stage directors. So from them, I, I, I think I, I learned everything during doing it, while, do, uh, while doing it. So that's one part. The other part that uh, I had the chance also to work with uh, classical theater uh, stage directors okay. uh, and from them I've learned uh, in, an incredible amount of, of skill and, and, and knowledge about theatre not about opera 
but about theater, how how I let how to be natural on stage, um, how to be in character, and and how to have a f- continuous flow of the thoughts. So I have a thought, and after I act, it's never a random yeah. thing on stage. It should be never. It should no. never seem like I okay now I do this yeah. I go from left to right it should never it has to there must be a thought before yeah. now my my uh, mentor Drew, Drew Minter who is also a stage director for Broke Opera he says first it's the thought then it's your eyes then it's the body mm-hmm. then it's the voice yeah that's, absolutely that's the order absolutely it's a super super uh, yeah. advice maybe. well I want to just ask you one more question before we wrap up so you have done this recording of Stefani duets with Amanda Forsyth and I forget who's the baritone Christian Inler and now you've done this fully staged uh, Stefani opera um, you are becoming like a Stefani specialist <laughs> can you talk just a little bit about because I think that we're going to hear more and more of Stefani um, how you feel as a singer with this music and how you relate it to other composers and how, mm. how it fits you know, in the history? I love this music yeah. because um, it's an interesting transition mm-hmm. between the Seicento and the... Um, High Baroque, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's eclectic a yeah. little bit because, because sometimes he takes from the Seicento composers like Cavalli, Monteverdi, but yeah. sometimes it's just... It's going forward very much to handle, and yeah. I love it. I really, <laughs> I, no, I love it, and especially in this in this uh, orchestration yeah. with this very rich, continual section. I yeah. think it's it's uh, it's wonderful. It, really. it allows you to use your voice in different ways. Like there are exactly some, there are colors. Yeah, there are sometimes where you're just going for the text, and then there are sometimes where it's just beautiful tone and the coloratura and like. These duets are so seductive. They're so heartbreaking, you know. Absolutely, yeah. and and um, uh, also, for instance, when Angelica, uh, who is sang, uh, which role is sang by Amanda Forsyth, appears. She's a princess, but when yeah. she appears as a shepherd, yeah. the music starts to be a little bit rustic. Yeah, it's really you. Know, so it's a really beautifully written opera. Uh, with the many colors, many dances, uh, the numbers are not too long, mm-hmm. so you can't get bored. Yeah, it's just going, it's going, going forward. It's really nice. Well, by the time this airs, the Boston Early Music Festival will be over. But uh, if the pattern holds, um, the festival will record this opera in like two years, and then so <laughs> our audience can hear your performance as Bradamante maybe in three years. <laughs> So you have that to look forward to. Let's hope. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, you can hear uh, Emirka singing arias of Strozzi, Cavalli, and Chesti. Is that also on your new recording? Yes. Voglio? Voglio cantar. Voglio cantar. Yes. Uh, there's also that recording with Amanda and Christian of Stefani Duets. There's a new recording of Debussy songs you did? Yeah, it's a three-year-old recording. Okay. Who's the pianist on that? It's a, she's, she's Emma Shavirag, who is a Hungarian, great Hungarian pianist. Okay. And, uh, of course, you're on the uh, Julius Caesar with uh, Alan, the late Alan Curtis conducting. Um, and I'm sure there's more because you have a contract now with Erato. So yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell us what the next project is? Or uh, what not really yet, okay. but it's, it's, um, it will come soon. Okay. So very soon. That's and, and it's completely different than the first one. It's Puccini Arias. Um, <laughs> almost. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Emilke Barat. Can I one more time? Emilke Barat. Emilke Barat. Yeah, perfect. Oh, Thank you. Gosh, by the end, I got it. <laughs> She's Emilka Barat. He's Oliver Camacho going inside the huddle with the Hungarian soprano. New diversity initiatives, new strikes, new opera, new sexual assault allegations. That's all next on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendantin Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. San Francisco Opera has created a Department of Diversity, Equity, and Community. Chip McNeil, presently of the Education Department, will become the first director of DEC on August 1st. The Baltimore Symphony Orchestra is locking out its musicians now that contract and salary negotiations have stalled. The Baltimore Sun reports the lockout starts tonight. Rhiannon Giddens, the folk musician and host of WNYC's Aria Code podcast, has been commissioned to write the score and libretto for a new opera based on the autobiography of Omar Ibn Said, a Muslim-American man who was enslaved and transported to Gadsden's Wharf in Charleston, South Carolina. The opera will be at the Spoleto Festival next spring. The Philadelphia Orchestra announced last week it received a $55 million gift from anonymous donors. The orchestra filed for bankruptcy back in 2011. It now plans to devote just $5 million of the gift to operating expenses. It will use the rest to replenish its endowment and invest in the future of the organization. Angry public responses to the casting of Matthew Stump as Leporello and Mozart's Don Giovanni have prompted Michigan Opera Theater to drop him from the cast. MOT says, quote, it will be making casting changes for the role of Leporello in the company's fall 2019 production. Stump was accused by a colleague, Jolie O'Dell, of sexual assault after she allowed him to sleep over at her place. The Dallas Opera has announced the winner of the 2019 Maria Callas Debut Artist of the Year Award. That's American mezzo-soprano Stephanie Blythe for her portrayal of Mistress Quickly in the company's spring production of Verdi's Falstaff. The award's given to a single performer each season at Dallas in recognition of a particularly memorable and outstanding company debut. On the disabled list, international opera star Measha Bruggers-Gosman is awaiting double bypass surgery in a Calgary hospital. Exit stage right Alamo City Opera being dissolved by its board in the wake of the death of founder Mark Richter. And on this day, June 17th, composer Charles Gounod was born in 1818. Samuel Barber's A Hand of Bridge premiered in 1959. Igor Stravinsky was born in 1882. Leonard Bernstein's A Quiet Place premiered in 1959. And friend of the show Gregory Spears opera Fellow Travelers premiered in 2016. That's your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Oh, they're all here tonight in Studio One and Studio Two. Well, except Toby, but who really cares about him at this point? (laughs) Miss you, Toby. I know what a what a big day for opera debuts. June seventeenth yeah. is apparently the day for chamber the hits. Day for I, I cut a few too. It was a, 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 a lots of good ones. Lots of good ones. It's only been two years since Greg Spears's fellow travelers premiere. Uh, that was that was three years ago. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what? How you but, doing, George? How time flies <laughs> when you're having. <laughs> the numbers are hard for the for all of us. <laughs> the, re- the redheads. The redheads. We can't. We can't talk about the numbers. Um, all right, gentlemen. Where are we going to start on this two-minute drill? Ugh, the Michigan Opera Theater stuff. I, I've been seeing yeah. that all over my Facebook. Uh, yeah. That's where I get all my news. Do you yeah. know? Do you know any more details on the story? Or I, I'm, I, I do don't re- want to make I you do talk remember when this when when this story came up last summer, because of San Francisco Opera, San Francisco Opera's involvement, and they kind of released this press statement that's at the very bottom of the uh, the article that we'll link to on our website, uh, just kind of saying like, well, it seems like it's between the two of you, and we're not really going to get involved. And so the difference Ooh. between that re- reaction a year ago and Michigan Opera Theaters really stood out to me as something. Uh, about how, f- I mean, hopefully how far our culture has come. I'm not, I'm not holding my breath that everything is going to be fixed, but it does seem like people 
I, it does seem like at least some people there are listening. So that is a step in the right direction, you know? Yeah, I think the, uh, I mean, obviously this is such a, you know, depressing one. I could feel us all like, oh, we're going to have to talk about it, you know? Right. Uh uh, it's an important thing to talk about, obviously, um, but at the same time, you know, after uh, Levine and uh, and uh, people like this, you know, you, you it does get tiring <laughs> after a while. Um, however, I do want to point out uh, the article we uh, uh, we kind of uh, looked at. Well, the article I looked at is from TwinCitiesArts.com, dot um, uh, and I think we'll probably try to post that on our website because it's a really good article because of the way it breaks down. Um, how that allegation, uh, well, not the allegation, how, how you... How making an allegation. Exactly, how, how that goes through from from from, uh, from first experiencing the, um, the assault or um, to, uh, to researching online, seeing, hearing about other people, determining how worth it it is. It points out very, it points out things that are very specific to the opera community and why it makes it really difficult to come out and speak about these sorts of things in a way that I have not seen even in the wake of all of these other uh, allegations that have come up over the past couple years. And on top of that, it discusses the event at itself in yes. almost, not, in not almost, in nauseating detail. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that part is a, is a, Definitely a, a, a little bit of a warning on that if you do read the article, but I would highly recommend the rest of it because it, it takes a really thorough track on really getting inside what it takes and what sort of things that people are looking at when they're considering whether or not to and, bring that allegation forward and in what way. Yeah, and it gives and I and it, it gives context about what absolutely what those consequences might be in ways that most journalism is not able to or willing to do. Right. Uh, the other tough part about it, I'm sorry, is that Stephen Lord, um, he has been sort of dragged into this. and This is the conductor. And yeah, and like so many people, at least in my circle, like really respect this man and, you know, are grateful to him for his mentorship over the years stuff like that. And now he has to like save face. And he, I don't know if he made a mistake. I don't really even understand like how he's involved in this. But um, yeah, it's, it's embarrassing when pe- people that you really respect and revere um have to like eat crow and you know backtrack it's like ugh, it's just so icky you know mm-hmm. he wasn't the offender maybe he came to the defense of the artist uh who is allegedly allegedly this uh, you know uh, harasser and um yeah i mean i might have made admittedly the, yeah a harasser even yeah <laughs> so um we all make mistakes and yeah it's it, it's it's tough <laughs> it's just tough <laughs> tough to talk about this is another topic that I, I find tough to talk about so alamo city opera is being dissolved by its board in the wake of yeah. the death of founder mark richter that was on our exit stage right back in april richter of course launched the company in 2012 it was under a different name he died april 28th the quote this is from the chairwoman of the board carol karatkin saying quote we have several we had several options and this was the one that was viable and really retains his legacy because he had that incredible imagination and powerful talent that a lot of people don't have. There could be nothing less imaginative than closing an opera company <laughs> once the founder passes away. I have, I mean, I, I do not understand this decision. I, have, I, I, I don't agree with it, but I definitely understand it. If yeah. you're like Alamo Opera, I mean, doing, is kind of in this in-between place between like a repertory company and a storefront company. Sure. They have a budget of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, which most opera companies in Chicago would love to have. Um, and, and they def- and they did a lot of important work serving uh, the primar- primarily the uh, really trying to uh, involved the Latin American community down in San Antonio. They had also just done as one. Yeah, and yeah. and, and yeah. they were really focused on bringing intimate, uh, kind of cutting edge operas out to the people, which is wonderful, important work, but it's not easy work. And if you are going from a company that ha- that has that kind of a budget and has one person who was really going above and beyond to do, I'm sure, the work of more than one person, trying to find a replacement for that person might be so impossible that it's easier for the board just to close up shop. Right. But it but it, it does leave a it is a terrible tragedy for the community that they don't have this that they don't have this company here anymore and they and they don't have the the work that it was presenting. Yeah, I, there was a there was an option discussed at some point uh, with this where they weren't they weren't 
going, uh, one of the options was like, well, maybe we won't close it down, but we'll start collaborating with other smaller companies in order to get, to get stuff out there. And I, I, I like that a little bit better. Um, I mean, obviously, I think it's always a tragedy when we lose an opera company, uh, particularly one that, um, you know, where, where the person in charge is such an integral part of it. But I think if opera is to be self-sustaining, there is a certain point where you do have to, you know, look at the person who has left you and say, okay, now we have to step up and uh, try to make it work. Uh, it might not work, but I think it'd be... I, I kind of wish they had tried it. Yeah, I, mo I, but I mo most of the quotes in this article seem to be alluding to the fact that no one wanted to do the amount of work. Thank that, you. That yeah. he exactly. Was putting in. No one said this was easy, right? No one. No one says this is going to make you any money. One of the quotes in the article. This is through um, mysanantonio.com. I believe this is one of the singers saying, uh, "Quote: Anyone who saw Mark knew he wasn't growing rich off opera, which is right. the case with most artists." I assume he means that. Most artists also don't grow rich off. I opera. think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> super clear from that. Uh, yeah, no one said this was easy. This this is this is tough work. But I refuse to believe that there is not somebody else in San Antonio who would have the tenacity, longevity, determination, passion, skill set. To keep an opera company like you that, you should join their board, George. I, mean, I think because <laughs> most of us in this studio here are artists. Sorry, Weston. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Whoa! <laughs> no, you no, 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 no. You're an artist. Just as much of an artist. No, as I think I'm a podcast. I think because we're artists, we don't realize that like we're just used to having no boundaries and working tirelessly and just devoting so much of our life that we could be spending with our family or making money doing a real job. We just take it for granted that that's part of being yeah. in this business. You know. Fair point. That's, yeah. a, that's a very important point. We've got time for one more quick hit. Who's it going to be? What are you going to talk about? I mean, I'm so glad that Stephanie Blythe is getting her big break from the <laughs> Dallas Opera. That was my... Winning the Maria Callas <laughs> Award for... I, for debut by an artist, <laughs> that was my. I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily think that they had uh, an artist, who, uh, an, ex an incredibly prolific artist, who debuted with the Metropolitan <laughs> Opera in 1995 in mind when they came up with. This I award. do think it was very funny. Uh, I mean, she she pretty much deserves any award that you can throw. Yeah, at not her, taking but... away from Stephanie Blood at all. I'm sure it was a great performance. Far from but... it. No, this unknown singer. Oh, this is given, it was given for a particularly memorable and outstanding company debut. I mean, that's probably true. Is Probably this an annual memorable. award, or do they just give it out whenever like, they whenever they feel whenever like that? inspiration strikes? Suppose there's a whole bunch of people debuting at Dallas next season. Like they're just like fine, they're not great, and so <laughs> nobody gets it. No one has really embodied the spirit of Maria Callas. <laughs> I yeah. just, I'm just scratching my head. <laughs> I, I'm just scratching my head over that. But th I mean, thank God that that she's finally that she's finally breaking the attention through. she deserves. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. All right. <laughs> I got to wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. We're on a roll on this show, gentlemen. Yeah. We've got a number of great back-to-back -back shows. I hope everybody's enjoying it out there. Thanks for listening to us, of course. So many different ways to listen live on WNUR, also on the podcast feed as well through... Is it still Apple Podcasts or iTunes or what is it? it, 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 it not for long. <laughs> yeah, they're going to change it before too long. So keep searching for us if you don't hear from us in a couple weeks. Good calls, bad calls. We're going to throw it over to Oliver Camacho. Uh, just as a reminder that uh, Central Park 5 at Long Beach Opera mm -hmm. and Fire Shut Up in My Bones, I finally got that right, nice job. at Opera Theater St. Louis uh, are still in production and they've been getting great publicity and great reviews. So check those out if you are in California or St. Louis. And if you're in Chicago, you should check out the CSOs doing AIDA. Um, they're uh, opening Sold on Friday. Out. Oh, dang. Well, never mind. You've already missed your opportunity. Yeah. Oh, you, can hype it. you can hype it, bro. <laughs> yeah. Sure. There's, uh, if, if they go in there, see if there's anyone who doesn't show up. But it's going to be Friday, June 21st, 23rd, and 25th. 
Uh, it's got Ricardo Muti conducting, uh, um, Ildar Abradzakov, Eric Owens. It's going to be star-studded. It's going to be fun. <laughs> the, if, you can, if you can get you a... You didn't mention either of the women who are way more important. Tamara Wilson and Nida Rajvillichvili. You just didn't want to say her name. Oh, it's Christmas Storynova. It's not Oh, Christmas Storynova. Yeah, but I'll say that there's an article that just came out on CSL's website. Uh, Ricardo Muti has anointed Anita Rockbellishvili as the greatest living Verdi mezzo. Oh, well, well so it should, should be good. <laughs> all, the should, ones, you, all the other ones have died. <laughs> you should you should go scalp a ticket for it. Standby tickets. Uh, the website says standby tickets are now yeah. available, so you yeah. can go for it that way. It'll be it'll be fine. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Samil Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song, Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. And our opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, Mirka Borat, along with co-hosts Matt Cummings and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera now that summer is here, except it isn't in Chicago. It's still like 50 degrees. We're back on Monday, June 24th, 9 p.m. Central, when opera baritone and hip-hop MC KF Jacques joins us live in studio to talk about his unique brand of interdisciplinary work you don't want to miss that. You still got more opera. You got more hot takes. You got more popcorn. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment.